Hello and welcome to episode number 322 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have scientists, interviews, authors, discussion, learning, creatives, and more. We are trying to improve in this life, understand things, and connect concepts. On this episode, actually, before we get into it, make sure to subscribe, leave a review online, Apple, Google, wherever it is, Spotify, wherever you can support. That is great. This episode, we have the author of this book right here. The 9.9%, the new aristocracy that is entrenching inequality and warping our culture. The author is Matthew Stewart. He joins us here. Matthew, welcome to the show. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Armin. I'm glad to have you on. For those who may be wondering, Matthew is an independent philosopher and historian. He has authored many books, including Nature's God, The Management Myth, The Courtier and the Heretic, Montreal's Dream, and The Truth About Everything. He graduated from Princeton uh, in political philosophy and studied at Oxford University, where he has a doctorate in philosophy. Philosophy is a constant across the board there. Now, in the category of philosophy, before we get into content of the book, why that category? Why not another category of study in your time? I think that I was ridiculously ambitious. I mean, I, I wasn't happy with small truths. I wanted the big truth. I actually started studying physics, um, but then I wanted to go into metaphysics. I guess that's the way, the way of looking at it. Um, and so, yeah, very early on, I just decided that that's, that's where I had to go. I had to be in the, uh, in the, you know, the, the deepest minds of the search for truth. That makes sense. Now, physics, when I think of that, it makes me think that physics, it doesn't have as much uh, people, behavior, understanding. It lacks that element. It's more cut and dry. Is that the reason that you would switch more towards philosophy? Well, I'd hate to um, probe my 18-year-old self too deeply on this because I don't know if the concepts were really that well-defined. I think a career in physics would probably be great. I wouldn't at this point um, try to dissuade anybody from that or move them into, into philosophy or the other way around. I think it just depends on who you are. But for me at the time, I, I, I just felt that it was important for the world and, mm-hmm. and for me to, to focus on the questions that philosophy raises about justice, about truth, about the nature of a, of a good life and of a good society. So um i don't think that focusing on those questions necessarily delivers answers that are always helpful i think sometimes it might be better for people to focus on subatomic particles but um but for me at the time that seemed the right thing to do and i i i I don't regret it um i don't really have the opportunity to regret it but uh, uh here we are in the category of philosophy what areas have you most focused on and how has it been beneficial to work with the universities you have gone to to learn those things? Well, I, I would say there, there are two um, ways in which I'm probably distinct from most people who identify as philosophers. Uh, one is that I, I do tend to gravitate towards questions of, of politics and, and, and justice. So I'm, 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 I'm more concerned about what we can learn uh, from philosophy, from thinking, from reason about how to order society in a reasonable and fair um, way. Um, 
And I guess the second thing that makes my approach perhaps distinct from a lot of what is called philosophy today is that I'm very historical in the way I think about these issues. Um, and that's not because I'm, I'm just, I just happen to be interested in, in history as opposed to analysis. It's because I actually don't think there is much philosophy that isn't historically situated, that doesn't explain where it comes from. So I think that without being able to uh, understand what people are, the, the context within which people are talking, debating, and working out their concepts, you actually don't get very far at all in, in real philosophy. So I'm not, I'm in that sense, uh, while I'm sympathetic to attempts at analytic philosophy, that's kind of not what I, where I have been. Hmm. Would you say that philosophy or people's thinking that way over time is you have to take into account how far we've gotten over time in some context of understanding something, or are there some truths that 2000 years ago were figured out and that's done? Uh, I, I think it's that our concepts are a lot rougher than we think they are. Um, we throw things around um, like, um, you know, concepts of um, some abstract concepts like causation or uh, the nature of the individual or um, society. Um, and all of those concepts, those abstract concepts themselves have changed dramatically over time. They've become richer, they've become more nuanced. And then many of our smaller concepts are also equally more refined over time, sometimes through scientific advance, uh, sometimes through just logical advance, and then also sometimes more arbitrarily through historical changes. So um, you know, when I see an abstract uh, question in, in analytic philosophy, which I, I mean, I, they often pose things on the lines of, you know, uh, questions about free will or questions about um, the foundations of morality. Um, I, I just don't think that you can come up with meaningful answers in a vacuum of those because all of the concepts you're working with have to be explained in terms of their origin to some degree. Um, before you can even make sense of how uh, of what kind of answers you're going to give. Um, and also empirically, by the way, I just think that when you look at what philosophers actually do, it's always uh, heavily determined by the context within which they're operating. And so, you, you know, empirically, I would say most philosophy doesn't make sense unless you know what, you know, where they're coming from. Their mindset, because that's a starting point, their mindset and your mindset before you start communicating. Right, their mindset. And also remember, and, and this might connect it with, with the book that we are at some point going to talk about, right? Yeah. Um, I think that that mindset is often um, shaped in ways that we don't appreciate by our basic material and economic um, conditions. So um, it's not just at what time, what historical time people are speaking, but sort of where within a network of social classes, economic classes, um, and other kind of, you know, real earthy things going on, where, where are they coming from? You need to explain that before you can understand where they're going. And I think that that applies to us, that many of the things that we say about um, our society, you know, whether it's fair or not, whether, uh, whether there is this thing called merit and so on, all of those things are interesting to talk about in the abstract, but unless you know where, where this discussion is coming from within our society, you don't really know what people are talking about. That's true. If I said a certain phrase versus somebody on the other side of the planet said a certain phrase, mine might have a lot of meaning in the current moment, in my current location with the people I'm talking to, whereas over there it would seem comical out of place or not make sense at all. Right, right. So um, 
Well, I'm glad to see that you're a historically situated philosopher too. Then <laughs> I think a lot. I'm always, yeah, bigger picture view of the Earth, which is good. Now, and also just to elaborate one last thing on that, it's the only cat one of the main categories that I value those those discussions is all I'm here for because there's a lot of what I would call filler in this existence. And then there's a little bit that I would call the, the depth or such. And that's where I like to be. So wherever I can go towards that, that's a nice place to be. Now, switching over here to this book, the 9.9%, there are three groups that come to mind based on this book, the 0.1%, the 9.9% and the 90%. Can you give us a rough description of each of these groups and um, how, how they would be separated or what's their current dynamic in the United States. Yeah, and, and, but let's not forget this, uh, the initial discussion we had because the math is interesting, but it kind of is a way of getting into these philosophical questions. But let's go over the math though, just so it's clear. Um, so I think it's pretty well known, uh, I'm sure by most of your listeners that, um, economic inequality has increased dramatically over the last 50 years, and it's back to where it was about 100 years ago. So we're at the level of, sort of 1928, not a great year to be compared with. Um, I'd like to focus on wealth inequality as opposed to income inequality, and the reasons for that are, are complicated, but I think it does really matter. Wealth is, is, a, is a bigger concern, and the, the growth and the gap is greater there. Now, if you look at the distribution of wealth, uh, over the last 50 years and asked where has the concentration grown and where have people lost in relative terms. It turns out that all of the concentration, all of the relative increase in wealth has happened only in the very top sliver. That's the 0.1%, so the people at the very top. And that's people with $20 million or more in um, assets, um, net assets. Um, although even within that group, it's the, it's the hundred millionaires and the billionaires that actually have had the biggest increase by far. But it turns out just looking at the numbers that not everybody down below lost, uh, it's actually only the bottom 90% who have lost. So every percentile from 90 on down suffered a relative decrease in their wealth and that got transferred to the top 0.1%. But in between there's this group that I've called the 9.9% and it's basically held steady. Um, and so as the economy has grown, the 90% has gone down in relative terms, the 0.1% has gone up, and the 9.9% has managed to hold on. And not only has it managed to hold on, but it, it actually collectively is still the biggest chunk of the wealth. So it was about 55% of all wealth in the United States in 1928. It was about the same in 1960, and it's about the same now. So it has actually more than half of all the total wealth, and it's held on to it. Um, so that's, uh, well, one more point about the math that's really important. Um, so if you want to understand the American economy, you definitely have to look at that 0.1%, because they, they're calling the shots in many cases. But if you want to understand American society, you kind of have to look at the 9.9 and the 90. It's the relationship there that matters for most people, because most people, frankly, are not aiming, or they're kind of silly if they're aiming to be Jeff Bezos, right? It's much more likely that they're going to aim to be, you know, the guy with the nice house, you know, over in that nice neighborhood that's on the north coast of California. Um, so what matters is that kind of connection between the 90 and the 9.9. And, and people do move back and forth. So you need to understand that dynamic. And here's the one big mathematical point that matters. Um, if you look at the, the ratio of wealth between those two, 
it has changed dramatically. Uh, so it used to be that if you were in the middle of the pack of the 90 and you wanted to get up to the middle of the pack of the 9.9%, you had to increase your wealth by about a factor of 10, which is a significant increase, but it's you know not perhaps crazy. So now to make that same move, you have to increase your wealth by 24 times. So if you think of the American economy as the challenge that we're all faces, we're out there you know, trying to get to the head of the pack as we're supposed to with the American dream, right? Which is something you ought to question, right? Um, that, that little rat race is now two and a half times as hard, financially speaking. Uh, and that's the math. And the, uh, the, the general point I wanna make with the book kind of connects with the philosophical things that we were talking about. I think that that major structural change changes the way people think, the way they act. Um, and broadly speaking, my case is that it makes them kind of unreasonable. I mean, the, the greater that gap, the less um, their rational capabilities are able to function, the less we can build a society that's, that accepts the search for, for truth as an important part of its um, foundation. That's true. I think a lot about the dynamics that it causes, but before that, the would you say that I always think about this hill concept and like that uh, if you're on this side of the hill, you don't have enough in your bank account, then you're getting an interest charge, then your car has an issue and it's like always downward. And if you're on this side, you have investment properties that are giving you more money or stocks or something that's and it's uh, more and more. So would you say that that hill, the main the mid plateau would be at the 90th percentile then? Well, so so one thing that happens as inequality rises is that the the, the tipping point, I think you're getting at, that, that sort of tipping point kind of moves up. So when you have a relatively uh, flat society, you know, making it from the, the 60th, the, the bottom 60 to the top 40 might be the key point. But as things get more and more stretched out, um, the, the top group gets smaller and smaller. So, and, and the point I make in the book is the 9.9%, maybe 9.9% now, but in, call me in 10 years, it might be, you know, the 6.9%, right? Mm -hmm. um, so so that, um, that does change. And um, one other thing that you mentioned here that I'd, I'd like to draw out is that um, just in economic terms, it, the shape of this hill does change the way in which people make fundamental economic decisions. And one thing it does, for people in the in the bottom group, the bottom 90 or the bottom 94 or whatever it turns out to be, um, is it it actually makes them into um, bad gamblers. They, they essentially take more risk than they probably should um, because it's kind of their only shot, they figure. Uh, and and the, the simple illustration of this is, is college debt. So, um, if you're, you know, aspiring to move up into that 9.9 .9 or at least get somewhere close to it, you know very well in American society, you need that college degree. Um, unfortunately, as things get stretched out, the degrees that are really going to put you up in there are very hard to get. You have to go to, you know, crazy selective universities that cost um, crazy amounts of money. So um, you may be forced to essentially place a bet, borrow money. Um, which is readily available through these uh, federal guarantees and go to, um, you know, a not so great university. Um, but that then leads to, that creates a high degree of risk. And when you look at the numbers, you can see that it basically doesn't work out for a huge number of people. It's, it's, it turns out to be a bad bet. And yet many of the individuals going into it are in a way, they're, they're compelled to do it just because the hill is so steep. They don't really have many alternatives. And so, uh, and you know, in the 1920s, consumer debt, 
went up through the roof. Why? Because again, the same thing, there was massive inequality. People needed to have those appliances if they were gonna keep up. So they went out and borrowed more money than they could pay. And you had a you know credit bubble and a credit crunch. Mm-hmm. There's more risk taking that's not so sensible at that point. And then uh, connected to that on a bigger picture, which is the thing that I noticed, which I'm a big uh, viewer of or ob- observant of, is nuance. Does nuance go away as things become more uh, segmented? And clearly there's cutoffs where I, this is 2x, 3x, 5x required to get there. Do people become less? Does the warmth and nuance go away? I bet it does. But I'll tell you what else goes away. Um, um, communication goes away. So what happens is, as the groups split apart, um, you, you, they just get have less and less contact, and they frankly see one another as less and less human or less and less equal. Um, and this is something that we see so much of um, in the United States, um, uh, especially with the neighborhood phenomenon that we have going on, right? Where um, racial segregation continues. There's some arguments that maybe it's down a bit. Frankly, it's not down anywhere near enough. Um, but what's definitely gone up is economic segregation. So the the, the, the rich are kind of seceding and forming, forming their own little riches stands. And the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the middle income is kind of evaporating. And then you basically have the larger low in, income neighborhoods. So um, they separate, they stop talking to one another. They know much less about one another. That, so that's one thing that happens. And then um, the other thing that I think happens is that um, is I call it invis- invisibility of, of or, or let's call it internal focus of the different groups. So as the groups separate, um, they no longer really think about society at large. They spend most of the time figuring out how to compete within their group. Because if you're in that 9.9% and that group is getting smaller all the time, you're not particularly concerned about creating a better community. You're more concerned about making sure you don't lose your little you know, patch, the thing you're, you're holding onto. Right. Um, and so what you notice in, as this process takes hold is that these groups become in, incredibly internally focused. They're just struggling with one another. And they frankly don't give a damn about what, what's happening um, outside. And so a lot of the noise that we hear in the political world is in fact intra-elite struggle and competition you know, uh, one elite trying to bash another to sort of basically take his or her place. And um, it's less and less connected with, you know, what it is they're ostensibly doing there. So I, I say those, those are two, two things. But I think, you know, you're, you're right to think of it in terms of nuance and certainly in terms of warmth as well. I think those are things that, that go away as a society becomes unequal. That's the big, biggest thing I notice as I'm reading is those are the things that are most valuable to me in society is communication, warmth, nuance, detailed thinking. And I, I sense that all those things diminish when the groups are uh, separated in such a way. And it seems like there's a wall between them. It's kind of like, it just made me think of like Facebook marketing or some sort of internet marketing. You target the small groups that you want to reach. And then, so that means each of these segments, most of their targeting and their discussion is just their own, individuals and what they can do to maintain their presence in their local community or something like that. Yeah, yeah no, if I may, I'll, I want to riff on a couple of things you said there. Um, so one is that, uh, you know, when you talk about the social media and that kind of thing, there is this tendency towards objectification or various kind of theoretical ways of describing this, but 
you, I think you understand the, the gist of it, you know, the idea that people kind of get reduced to, um, uh, you know, commodities or just to, um, you know, mere consumers acting within um, sort of shallow individualistic economic transactions. And that unfortunately is something that also increases as inequality rises. And there's some really fascinating studies, I got a kick out of them where um, uh, they, they show that in areas with higher inequality, you have a higher prevalence, for example, of sexy selfies, right? You also have a higher prevalence of, of um, you know, cosmetic sales and other things um, that are intended to, you know, make people, you know, attractive sexual objects. And, right. um, and you have various other markers that basically show that, you know, the, the people in those contexts um, they objectify themselves and they also objectify other people with you know, greater alacrity and greater uh, frequency. Um, and that's, that's, that's something that you can tie directly to this kind of rising um, inequality. So that's something that I think is worth bringing out. Right. I think of these things. These things are very clear to me, like, you know, let's say a country showing off their tanks at wartime. It's very punchy and it's like this and that. Uh, whereas when things are going well in, in the country or in a person's life, it's less likely to be punchy and we, them, or I have to get this. It's, it's not so hard hitting. It's more, okay, things are good. We can work together. How can we get things done? Casual communication. It's more peaceful, I would say. A little bit of peace. Now, as far as education, which you brought up as far as uh, student loans being taken out, how does education appear to the 90% at this time versus the 9.9%? What's their difference of what education means to them? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, our ideas of education have, I think, gotten pretty messed up over this recent period. Um, and I think it's affected it, uh, the ideas at, at the different levels of, of society. But you know, broadly speaking, the 9.9% the is mostly a group that has succeeded through education, and it sees education as a kind of unadulterated good, and as something that, you know, marks those who are productive from those who are not productive. Um, I think that the um, people who haven't quite made it into that group, or perhaps don't expect to get there, see it in a much more instrumental way, um, uh, a much more vocational way. Um, but I think the important thing is to understand the, um, the loss that we've experienced of, in our understanding of education on all sides. So I think it, it's a, as close as you, get, as you get to a universal timeless kind of uh, fact that um, education is a, an investment that the public makes. That is, um, it is an investment that the public makes in creating good, productive citizens capable of uh, interacting in cooperative, harmonious ways. I don't deny that it also has a training aspect and a vocational aspect, um, but it, it fundamentally, it's something that we invest in uh, collectively as a society. The founders, bless their souls, are entirely on my side on this question. Okay, this is, if you read anything that Thomas Jefferson said about education, you know that I'm merely echoing his words. John Adams was the same, George Washington the same and so on. So uh, what happened in the past 50 years is that without really admitting it to ourselves, 
we kind of gave up on that concept, especially, uh, well, at, at all levels, I would say, especially in higher education, but also in secondary and primary education. Um, one of the amazing feats of the 19th and early 20th century was the, after the mid 20th century, was the creation of a public university system. So they didn't exist before. Um, the federal government made them possible to a large extent by granting public land taken from natives. So apologies, but that was the basis of um, the, uh, the first basis of the university system. Um, uh, key investments in the middle of the century, GI Bill and so on, produced a public university system that was incredibly effective, all things considered. It was um, not at all uh, racially fair, but it was at least um, uh, effective in creating a large white middle class. Um, and over the past 50 years, we've kind of given up on that without admitting it. We've essentially shifted the burden for funding from the uh, from governments, um, which were mostly the state governments, to students. So students now pay most of the bill for state universities. We've you know, allowed the state universities to you know hive off little boutiques that are sort of high prestige private universities in in drag, um, and we've left the public universities to. Um, uh, soak up lots of money from students, but not necessarily advance them in the ways that they should be advanced. So um, we've created this kind of semi-pseudo-private university system, uh, but then we allow people to borrow money so that they, they pay the universities and the university administrators and so on to continue this uh, shell game. And that's, that's really unfortunate. Um, and I can't solve all of the higher education problems in one go, but I'm gonna do this, the primary and secondary very quickly. We've also kind of semi-privatized um, public education at primary and secondary levels because we've we've allowed the districts to gain um, an unholy degree of command. The Supreme, with the intervention of the Supreme Court, um, we've uh, basically prevented um, state and federal governments from really equalizing um, the school districts so that people who actually need the education, educational resources, will get them. And the consequence is that, as everybody knows, if you want a good public education, you buy an expensive house. Uh, which is a pretty effective way of making sure that you'll have a not very functional society in the future. So um, we have a lot of work to do on education, but I don't want to be all gloom and doom. I think there are there are solutions. There are uh, it's we can think of some solutions. Um, they've been suggested, but perhaps more interestingly, many of them are implemented in other countries. So we might want to you know uh, set aside our kind of. USA number one stuff for a moment and take a look at what other countries have done, see what we can learn from um, education systems that have a healthier balance between the early years and the later years and that are more equitable. On that point, even though we have this dynamic currently in the United States, before we go into other categories in education, are there any countries in the world that at the current moment don't have the same um, percentages and also the We'll call it decline of the bottom end as far as uh, their opportunity to increase. Yeah, I mean, if, if you um, look at social mobility numbers, um, these are numbers that give you some indication of how easy it is for people in a um, who are born into a family of a one economic category, how, how, how easy it is for them to move into another. That's a good measure of the effectiveness of the education system because that's probably the biggest single um, leverage point, um, although of course there are many others. Um, what you see is that the United States performs quite poorly on that. We're the land of the uh, of freedom and opportunity. We're not actually the land of social mobility. Our, by, by most measures, 
there's less mobility here than there's in other countries. And the, and the ones that I would point to, um, it's not complicated. Japan and Germany both have higher degrees of social mobility. They also have much more equitable systems of education. They're far from perfect, but um, there's certainly a lot that can be learned there. Of course, the Scandinavian countries do well, and I know people will always dismiss that as being in some way exceptional. I don't think it's so exceptional. I think it's worth looking at. They definitely do much better. Um, uh, uh, in many of these cases, you see not only um, a greater degree of equity, but you also see higher student performance. Right? So, uh, you know, one, one of the underlying narratives in the United States is, oh, yeah, you try to help, you know, everybody, and you're just going to make everybody worse off. You know, we all got to, you know, be individuals and go out on our own and do it by ourselves. And, well, it turns out, actually, if you run a fair system, you end up helping everybody, and they actually perform better. So the students in many of those countries, they score higher on international tests. They, they perform better in any number of other ways. So, so there's much to learn. I don't think it's perfect out there. I don't think the United States is behind in every respect. But um, you know, it, some of these are, are these are some of the many consequences of our failure to grapple with these huge structural economic problems. That's great. So countries like Germany and Japan and some of the Scandinavian countries. One thing that comes to mind is this is more of a self-oriented thing. If if I wanted to, is there anything that could be done in in the United States to alter this dynamic? that makes a lot of the things I find more interesting to decline over the next, let's say, decade or so. What kind of response, what can be done? Or is it more of a cycle and the pressure is already there for these things to occur? Whereas in some of, let's say, the European countries, it's more stable over time. So maybe we have more of a punctuated cycle compared to theirs. Well, um, you know, the, the point of, analyzing everything that's wrong with the world, which let's face it, that's what we're trying to do. It's very hard to do. Um, so thanks for going along with that project. But the point of it is to um, get some sense of priority, right? So in terms of um, solutions, I would say if you, if you lay out a, a, um, basic policy ideas that we can pursue, I don't think they're that hard to find. And there are very many of them uh, and, you know, we, I, we can rattle off a whole list. Um, you know, we, we need to obviously uh, change our healthcare system, change the, the way in which we do education. I think the, um, our residential zoning is a, is a huge um, crisis that we can try to solve. But as I say, if you have all of these, these issues, you need to somehow um, prioritize. And I basically think of it in terms of two fundamental priorities that are opposite ends of the sort of real and ideal spectrums. On the, on the kind of real side, most of these the problems we're facing do originate from these major structural flaws in our system. Fundamentally, we have a system that generates a high amount of economic rent, that is a high amount of money that basically is not uh, a reward for productive or constructive activity, but this is essentially a kind of extraction from the rest of society. It shows up in various forms, it comes through monopolies, comes through, um, you know, our failure to tax in a manner that corresponds adequately to the way in which um, uh, people use common resources. Um, but that those big structural economic problems that have created a kind of, um, you know, a winner-take-all economy and one that ignores the actual contributions of many people, that's the, that's the meat. That's the real thing that we have to fix. 
Um, and I think that you know, once we fix that, many of the other things will, will kind of fall into place. Um, and at the other end, on the ideal end, um, I'm kind of driven by this question, well, given that some of these solutions are actually pretty clear, I won't say they're totally clear, you can always debate the fine points, but it's not that hard to see that our system of taxation is kind of grotesque. I mean, when billionaires are paying um, less in income tax than their secretaries, which they are, and when they're paying less in terms of their overall wealth than anybody, that's just insane. So the real question is, why is it happening? Or why are we not doing anything about it? And that's what leads me to this, the idealistic part of the solution, which is let's figure out what's wrong with our thinking, with our public discourse that is blinding us to some of these obvious realities in our face. What can we do to kind of, you know, throw off those, those, those sunglasses, the not the rose-tinted ones, but the, the kind that don't let you see. How do we, how do we get rid of those and, and you know, face our reality a little more clearly? And that's, you know, that's hard to do. I mean, uh, um, it's more subtle and um, you know, that requires some thinking. But you know, if I may, I'll also just round off with that. I, 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 it would be natural to ask for something more concrete. Say, okay, I want to know what I got to do tomorrow and so on. And you know what, I, I wish I could say that, but I don't know if I could say that in a way that's going to be all that useful to many people who might want to you know, participate in a discussion like this. Um, but I'm committed to a certain basic philosophical idea, which is that um, the foundation of our moral life is actually our understanding. It's actually our ability to make sense of the world. Um, and the more we understand about ourselves, when we see an injustice in particular, I think it's very hard for us not to act on it or not to figure out some way of, of coping with it. So, so I, I think it's very important for us to try to understand the world better, to try to figure it out. And then, yes, let's think about solutions, but let, let's make sure that we know what the, what the issues are. And I'm, I'm hoping that once we have that, we can you know, find the solution that's easier to come by. That makes sense. I tend to be more on the abstract end and the con concrete end as far as my thinking or my day-to-day. -day. From a philosophical viewpoint, does the abstract always come after the concrete? Is it always that the baseline items have to be tended before we can get the great uh, thinking and nuance? Or can, I don't know, it's kind of a tough question, can this impact the concrete after the fact is it only an effect that this is the nice stuff after the fact or can it um have an impact on the concrete yeah well you know so that's a really philosophical question and the, and the really philosophical answer is of course to take these categories that you're laying out and flip them around what i'm going to suggest is that very often what we what we think of as concrete is actually incredibly abstract and in order to get at what is concrete, conversely, we often need to think really, really carefully, really, really hard and come up with a lot more abstractions. So what I, what I mean by that is that um, in many cases, I see our lives are driven by certain remarkably simple ideas. So, um, you know, one really simple idea that most people walk around with is that well, in our economy, everybody's paid what they're worth and everybody more or less gets what they're worth. Um, so, um, 
money is just kind of a measure of talent and effort, right? And it's a really simple idea. Um, but for me, that's a really abstract idea. It's kind of saying, okay, the world's really simple. There's only three colors in it, and this is the way they operate. Um, it's really abstract. And I won't say that it's completely untrue. What I will say is that it's kind of like trying to draw a painting of the Mona Lisa with only three, three colors. I mean, you're, you're, you're not gonna represent reality in any meaningful way, or you're gonna misrepresent it fundamentally. So um, in order to get at the concrete, we sometimes have to set aside these really abstract categories, what I've been calling abstract, and develop much more sophisticated and much more nuanced things that, that may, may sound abstract to the unphilosophical. Right. But I'm, since no one watching this is unphilosophical, <laughs> uh, they may seem abstract, nuanced, or you know, um, complex. But in my view, they, they will be more concrete. They will produce a kind of, you know, what one of my old philosophers, uh, Hegel, called the concrete universal. Um, that's a kind of, you know, you know, an explanation of what's actually happening, what the, the, the idea that's sort of explaining the way the world is, in fact, structured around us. So anyway, I just want to reverse some of your thoughts there on abstract and the concrete. Um, uh, and I want to suggest to people that, you know, let's, let's be a little more um, complex, I think, in the way that we approach the world and some of the problems we face. I know at the end of the day, we all want to boil it down to something simple, like, you know, this is what's good, this is what's bad. Um, but, you know, our society is incredibly complicated. And if we want to get a grip on it, we do have to, you know, pay very close attention to, to the facts, to what we can learn about it before we you know, whip out our handy concepts like market, merit, or you know, freedom, things like that. I am very glad for the adjustment you made there on the thinking, so I will take that into account for myself. I have two last questions here. One is, um, who are any individuals you have uh, looked to or uh, people you have found useful or specific books you have connected with uh, for a long period of time. That's the first one. Well, you know, I, I, I have my, my um, portfolio of favorite philosophers. So, um, but I, I don't want to bore people too much with that long history of philosophy. But if you, anybody who's read my previous books will know that, um, that I find a lot of meaning in um, among the ancient philosophers um, Epicurus and Lucretius, but there, there are others there as well who I think are immensely rewarding. Um, and then um, among the early modern philosophers, uh, Spinoza. Uh, and um, I also gravitate toward the 19th century German idealists. But let's set aside those boring old philosophers. I mean, everybody knows that kind of canon was kind of created for various purposes and needs to be questioned at various points. Um, I'll mention a couple of others that, I, I, that matter a lot to me. Um, so in understanding the American situation, I don't think you can talk about um, American social political history without um, pretty soon talking about um, race and about the connection between race and economic class. Um, and I, I wanna stress that it's that connection that in particular I find important because I, I'm, I'm not drawn to 
um, projects that essentially focus entirely on racial justice because I think that they miss this fundamental connection between racial justice and economic justice. And on that, in particular on that connection, um, I have found um, uh, Frederick Douglass and W.B. Du Bois to be particularly um, helpful um, and sort of touchstones on, 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 on you know, conclusions that I, I, I want to draw. Um, and then the last thing I'll, I'll throw out kind of a wild card is in my book, um, uh, he's more or less forgotten now, but I think Henry George is, is worth paying attention to. Um, he was very prominent in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was, um, uh, he had an idea that um, our economy, uh, it, it produces a huge amount of wealth and poverty at the same time, and that this could be explained by our failure to appreciate that land in particular um, accumulates a lot of our, the value that we create in common, and then it gets kind of appropriated by some people within society. So we create wealth, but through a device that he called plan, which I think can be generalized, basically mean any form of uh, monopolistic control, um, that common good gets unjustly siphoned off toward one group and it leaves others in poverty or struggling with inequality. So um, those are some people I would pay attention to, but there are many more, many more makes sense i like that point right there once something is put like borders around it or description or something then there's individuals that look at it like all right i'll take four percent i'll take eight percent of it there's some math that strategy that happens in the background the last thing i would want to check is what would you want to let all people of the planet know if you had a megaphone about the 9.9 percent i would like to let them know that um that even though it's supposedly only 9.9% of the population, they are, in fact, mostly, and most people hearing me would, in fact, be members in some sense of the group. Um, and so I'm going to ask them to um, think about um, what that implies in terms of the values that they're pursuing. Uh, and, um, and then I would ask them to, to um, just inspect those values see if they really are what they want to pursue or where they're coming from within that is wonderful and i do like the thoughtful demeanor behind it because to me and i'm it's very specifically to me but it's more important than anything the what we're talking about and the way we're talking about it that to me is like the baseline but everybody has different priorities on what they are concerned with Matthew, Stuart, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode number 322 of the Armin Show podcast regarding this book right here, bringing discussion to the table and bringing a mindset that well, it's the kind I enjoy. So that's a great thing. It's great to be number 322. <laughs> Happy to join you. And we are out.